Hello everyone, welcome to the Energy Live News podcast. This week we are discussing the huge challenges all the energy users are facing in the upcoming uh, winter. And here with us is uh, Chris So, who is the interim chair at uh, a new organization, the Energy Consultants Association. Hi Chris, thank you very, very much for joining Energy Live News. How are you? I'm very well, thanks. Thanks for, uh, thanks for having me on board. Uh, how are you? I'm very, very good. Thank you, Chris. Good, so good. let's start uh, with uh, the Energy Consultants Association. As a newly founded organization, can you please uh, tell me a little bit more about its goals and priorities? And can you please tell us a little bit more about the reasons behind uh, the creation of the association? Yeah, of course. So there's been a number of attempts over the last two to three years, maybe even longer than that, to try and get a um, some trade bodies set up to represent the interests of brokers. But for various reasons, they've failed um, or failed to gather traction. And I think one of the reasons has been that most of the forums that have been set up or any entities that currently exist have got environments where you've got energy suppliers, uh, end users, uh, and brokers operating under one roof. And whilst on principle, that's a really good thing in terms of creating environments where, you know, all the all the, the links in the chain of supply get together to talk about all things related to energy. There are many instances where you have conflicts between suppliers' interests and brokers' interests. And for me personally, I always felt that the market was missing a trade association that purely and only represented the interests of energy consultants, energy brokers. Um, so because of uh, ongoing noise in the marketplace, um, because I felt personally that brokers continued to get a bad rep in terms of what we do. Um, and when we look at some of the reports and responses for information from uh, the CMA a number of years ago through to government, Ofgem, and more recently, Rico, there's just consistently been a lack of joined up thinking and feedback from brokers. So the voices, the very, very important voices of brokers just aren't, aren't coming through. So it was for many reasons that I and a few a few others felt it was important for us to get a trade body up and running that purely represented the interests of the brokers. And so the ECA has been formed. Um, it's been running now for about two months. We've got about 70 members, I think, so far. Our phase one target was to get to 100 members by the end of this year. Um, we're starting to build up an executive committee. Um, and, uh, you know, we're starting to provide some good feedback to our members and to wider third-party organisations and trying to help drive and shape the marketplace. In terms of things we're going to be focusing on, there's a lot to go at. Um, I think there's reputational you know, reminding people actually in terms of the good that brokers do, um, looking into areas such as how can we drive down and reduce the amount of fraud? There's been very high levels or increasing levels of fraud, especially in the broking community. Um, and this is where individuals and associations are using brokers to perpetrate fraud through suppliers. So what can we do to try and reduce the amount of fraud? Um, we've got codes of practice, obviously, that are starting to land on our desk, both from RICO and the code of practice that the ECA itself has got. 
And then there's a whole host of other areas in terms of how do we make the whole process, how brokers and suppliers work together far more efficient. How can we access data in more efficient means? How can we improve switching rates? And ultimately, how can we get wider access to switching to all types of customers? And then, of course, finally, there's the overall level of service and quality of service that you should expect as an end user to get from a broker. So how can we as the ECA drive standards that we would expect to see across our membership to improve better outcomes for the end customer? So there's lots to go at, but that's just a quick snapshot of some of the early stuff that we're focusing on at the moment. So as I can understand from what you're saying, it was uh, that need to be represented uh, by an official organization uh, that uh, drove you to create the Energy Consultants Association. What kind of feedback have received so far? From energy consultants, from, from from the energy consultants that have joined, um, you know, about time. Um, we should have done this years ago. Um, finally, there's enough of us starting to get together where our voice can start to be heard. Um, from other organisations, you know, the likes of Ofgem, etc. I think broadly those organisations welcome um, any type of situation where they can deal with one or they can deal with a small number of entities that have got the opinions and views of a large number of members, because it's a damn sight easier for Louise and the team at Ofgem to deal with you know, a few points of contact versus having to deal with hundreds, if not thousands of different, different brokers. We can engage with uh, ADR, provide feedback, which we're already doing in terms of what our members are seeing. Um, suppliers' feedback has been pretty good. Again, you know, consistent supplier feedback has been we're really surprised you've not done this, not done this years ago. So I think we're pleased that people are seeing the ECA as a voice for good and a voice for change. Um, the, you know, the hard work is going to be getting the engagement time with the relevant stakeholders involved in the marketplace to try and drive proper change through over the next 12, 18 months. You may agree uh, right now, Chris, that all eyes are fixed onto uh, the energy cost uh, for this winter. What do you see as the biggest challenges for energy users, especially in the non-domestic uh, market? Uh, cheap prices. Most of our members would would say that, you know, certainly for micro and SME-based customers, the primary decision is about, you know, who can provide me the cheapest price. We have thankfully seen some pretty significant declines in prices over the last six months, you know, from some of the dizzy heights that we had last year to around 25, 26 pence at the moment as a, you know, base cost for power and six to seven pence dependent upon consumption for gas in, in SME. Um, so it's price driven for the vast majority of customers. I think our members would say that whilst green um, and net zero is on the radar, and certainly it's clearly on the radar for larger users of energy, for most smaller businesses, which of course take up the vast, vast majority of meters that are in the UK, whilst green is a relevant point to discuss, most, you know, rightly or wrongly, you know, if there's a cheaper price option that isn't as green, and it's going to benefit their bottom line. You know, we do see consistently most people will try and go green, but ultimately it's the cheapest price that will that will drive the decision making. So cheapest price, stability in prices, 
Availability of credit from suppliers continues to be an issue. It's not as bad as it was. We, I think our members understand the reasons, and we as brokers understand the reasons why suppliers reined in credit, especially from some vulnerable sectors, you know, first hit by COVID. Um, but when you've got limited amounts of credit available to customers, you severely impact many types of customers, their, their ability to switch supplier. And of course, if you do anything that reduces the amount of switching that is available to occur in the UK marketplace, we know there's a direct link between higher switching rates and, and lower costs and lower switching rates and higher costs. So that's a bigger one, I think, that needs to be fixed over over you know the next six to 12 months. But it, it, it it's price. It continues to be price for, for the vast majority of people. And that, you know, the, there's a lot more stability in the marketplace than there was 12 months ago. And whilst there's been a lot of PR, um, negative PR around energy prices, you know, when you take a very high level view in terms of the effort and work that both suppliers and consultants have done over the last 12, 18 months to deal with the shock to the system that the conflict has created, I think underlyingly, you know, the market has operated pretty well to do what it's what it's done um over the last 12 18 months we we continue to see issues in terms of product range from suppliers you know there's not that many suppliers that are offering long-term products but there's not that many customers that are keen to lock into long-term products at the moment so and i think in due course as perhaps suppliers get more confidence in future markets that that might start to return as well but it it's price uh, you touched a few things about uh, small businesses, and I would like to focus on these small businesses uh, regarding the cost uh, in the coming uh, winter. With a new price cap announcement just a few hours away, do you believe that this will ultimately prove beneficial for businesses? And despite recent efforts, many uh, are still worried about the UK's energy crisis and the continuous increase in energy costs. Do you believe that are we out of the woods yet or do you see further challenges ahead in this regard? If I knew whether we were out of the woods yet, I would probably be making a lot more money buying and selling <laughs> buying and selling energy. So um, that's a really difficult one to call. Um, as I said a few minutes ago, it feels that the marketplace is a lot more stable and it feels that the system and this is just my personal view, but it feels like the system is better prepared for shocks of issues through conflicts, et cetera, and bad news than it was 12 to 18 months ago. I think there's more resilience in the system. Um, and of course, there's, you know, undoubtedly some risk that's now been priced into the system as well. So underlyingly, it feels as though it's a much better or it's likely to be a much more stable, much better winter. I mean, clearly it will be from last year. We'll need to look at what the weather throws at us as well um, and the impact on prices. Of course, we had issues with gas going up 10% uh, recently with uh, concerns around flow from Australia. So are we at the woods yet? No. Can we see the clearing? Possibly. Um are there still some material risks floating around in the marketplace? Absolutely, absolutely. But yeah, it, it does underline the feel like it's a much, it's a it's a healthier position today than it was, you know, nine twelve months ago. Definitely. Let's go to uh, a rather uh, new uh, recent development. In recent news, uh, the Energy Consultants Association 
has characterized the class action lawsuit filed by 5,000 small businesses as a PR attempt and stated that the claim compensation bears no relation to reality. Could you elaborate on, on this stance, on this matter? Yeah, I think, um, you know, the age old don't like the facts getting away of a good story springs to mind. And that that's certainly my frustration. Um, this is a this is a complex issue. And it's an issue that has been around for four years now, maybe even five years, and is likely to be an issue that's going to be around for, for the foreseeable future. Um, are there instances of bad actors in the broken marketplace? Yes, categorically there are. Um, there are bad actors in most marketplaces and energy consultants, energy brokers are no, are no different. And I'm not going to condone the actions of um, of some brokers in this sector that don't appear to offer the levels of service that I think the vast majority of us do to end customers. So there is clear there there is clearly some linkage between the actions of a small group of brokers um, and the way that they have signed customers up historically to contracts and the potential ability for lawyers, legal firms to pursue certain types of claims against those brokers. I think the issues here are the the reference points, the facts that the factual reference points that law firms, energy claims businesses are using are just wildly inaccurate. You know, so um 2.47 billion pounds worth of compensation through five thousand customers was a was a point that a law firm raised recently, you know, in a reasonably respected law firm. Well, you divide that by customer and you get to an average commission of two, three, four hundred thousand pounds per customer. That's just, it just, it just doesn't happen. You know, you can't get to those levels of commissions when you look at the typical business using 30, 40, 50, 60,000 pounds worth of, sorry, 60,000 kilowatts per year. Um, the, advertising that many of these organizations, these claims management businesses use heavily over Facebook are misleading. They make reference to, you know, quotes like Off-GM have forced brokers to pay up, which well, is not true. Uh, they use photographs and illustrations of the BBC or they'll use Martin Lewis, which again are just, you know, they're, they're just factually incorrect. Um, we've seen instances, there was a court case fairly recently, a case called the Dark Blue Pig, where a customer was picked up by an energy claims business, um, advised undoubtedly that they had a great chance of success, went to court, got a spanking at court, um, and the claimant ended up with a legal fee of £20,000. Um, so, you know, yes, there will be instances of poor behaviour, and yes, I'm sure there will be some legitimate claims that are floating about, but the bar that's being set the allegations of the of the number of these types of claims is just wildly, wildly inaccurate, uh, and it's just it just to us just stands as stands as an attempt to try and generate PR. I remind everybody that claims management businesses have to be regulated by the claims management regulator. However, when the claims management regulations were set up many years ago, the government and legislative eyes were on motor claims whiplash personal injury claims farming businesses and they didn't include energy claims businesses so these businesses operate as brokers do but they operate in a in an unregulated marketplace 
we our members tell us of allegations of data being used that's been bought or taken illegally. We see phishing exercises where the same legal letter goes to multiple brokers because they don't know who's actually introduced the customer. So they just try and send to everybody to see if anybody's silly enough to respond. Um, we have letters authorities that get sent out which haven't been signed by the customers. Um, certain individuals that are involved behind some of these claims management businesses, you know, the irony is that some of them ran boiler room scams in energy brokers that are no longer trading. So the whole thing's rather murky. Um, I think in due course we'll get some, you know, reasonable standard test cases that will put that will put this to bed. Um, and the ECA will continue to drive the narrative in terms of just pointing at the facts versus the fiction around this, you know, this topic as the information continues to flow. Uh, quite recently, uh, we uh, saw even Ofgem taking action regarding these issues that uh, we are discussing right now. The uh, regulator is currently considering extending licensing conditions that cover micro-businesses to all firms during contract negotiations with brokers. What are your thoughts on this proposed um, approach? And do you believe it's a step in the right direction to prevent situations like uh, exorbitant commission fees? This is a very, very complex topic, uh, which you could probably have an hour's podcast on and still still not get, you know, to to the clear, clear answers on it. I think that from an ECA perspective, the ECA clearly are supportive of any actions that improve the levels of service to the end customer and the transparency that customers should expect to get. So I think that's the that's the, the first point to lay out. I think we have to be careful in terms of the instruments that we and regulators use to try and improve levels of transparency. And I suppose our call out is we've just got to think these things through before we implement them. So, you know, as as some examples for, for people to, to muse over, the the interplay, the, the ecosystem between energy brokers and suppliers is a complex one. And, it, you know, it's a marriage of convenience that the vast majority of suppliers rely upon brokers to introduce customers. And actually, when you strip it back, it's a really efficient way of accessing customers for suppliers. Because effectively, the vast majority of the marketing cost ends up being put back onto the customer's energy bill. So let's imagine a world where brokers don't exist. Well, how are suppliers going to get hold of customers? Well, I think you would expect them to significantly increase the amount of money that they would spend on marketing because that's the only way they're going to get hold of customers. And if you type in cheap business gas or cheap business electricity at the moment, you'll see that the space within social is heavily dominated by two or three brokers, one being my, my company. Um, a couple of the price comparison sites and maybe the occasional supplier very occasionally, which just demonstrates that, you know, it's not suppliers that are heavily positioned in terms of direct selling. There are some exceptions out there, of course, with suppliers that only operate on direct books. But that cost has got to come from somewhere on on a on a direct model. And it's that interplay in terms of, you know, there's lots of talk around placing fee transparency within brokers contracts but suppliers don't have to place the transparency of what their fees are and if a supplier had to spend 500 pounds to market to a customer why would a supplier be obliged to disclose that fee 
you know, you don't go into Tesco's and get Tesco's tell you that they're going to sell you a bunch of bananas for 90p and they bought it for 50 pence. And that's a, you know, that's a, an exceptional type of, of, of example. To come back to the to the original point, you know, having degrees of transparency where customers are aware of, you know, you look at FCA type environments where brokers disclose their, their fees. We've got it in micro. It seems to work pretty effectively. Um, you know, moving it into other segments feels like it's something that's that's workable. And as I said earlier, you know, improved levels of transparency is a good thing. But we have to think through the unintended consequences of these types of actions. And that's the work that Ofgem hasn't done. We have these, you know, these anomalies with energy that don't happen in other marketplaces. And as an example, in telecoms, if you go to a direct seller, the wholesale cost that you can get from a direct seller will be no cheaper than the base price that a broker would sell it for. They're aligned. But in this marketplace, you could have a customer that could go to a load of brokers, get the brokers to do the work, generate the quotes, see the commission disclosed in the quote, then go and use a direct supplier. Hopefully save the commission is the customer's perspective and the and the supplier would do a deal or even the supplier might offer off, offer a rate that's cheaper than the base rate that they'd offer to brokers. Now, on an individual basis, you know, the customer benefits, the broker loses, and the supplier benefits. But if you scale that up, it becomes unsustainable. And, you know, you've got to think about transparency around low-value customers. So as an example, low-value customers can be challenging for certain types of brokers because they're they're not overly cost effective in terms of making making money out of them and many brokers many brokers that operate in the digital space effectively subsidize the access to those customers so if you've got a customer that's consuming 25,000 kilowatts a year and the broker puts a 1p uplift on it which will be fairly typical within the digital space and puts them into a 12 month contract the broker's going to get paid 250 pounds for that and probably get £200 up from either on live or on signature. But at the moment, the cost to acquire a customer, every time a customer clicks on a paid digital link cost, it's costing £150. And most digital brokers will convert one in three. So you've got a £450 outlay to acquire a customer that you're going to generate £250 on. Then you've got your operating costs. Then you've got to pay your agent a commission, maybe 10%, another £25. So they're, they're a loss leader for, for brokers. And there's thousands, there's tens of thousands of those customers that click on digital links and want to use brokers because they want the independent service. Now, take brokers out of the equation. Who's going to service those, you know, the, the, those customers? Um, are the, the service costs of those customers subsidized to some degree by some of the commissions that brokers earn on larger value customers? In some operating operating models, yeah. But it, it it's that whole interplay and ecosystem. You know, it's an easier lever to say, let's just put fee disclosure mandatory. And on principle, as I said a few minutes ago, I you know personally, I don't 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 overly have a, have an issue with that. But it's the consequence of that action. Does that action start to apply pressure to brokers and push more people into direct suppliers? Do we, as a result, see fewer? brokers operating because if we do see fewer brokers and there's a risk that with lower levels of broker action less people use brokers we know categorically 
And the more people that use brokers, it increases switching levels. The CMA said that a number of years ago. The less people that use brokers, the lower levels of switching rates. So you take brokers out, you see lower levels of switching, you see higher levels of direct marketing costs, and you see higher levels of deem rates, customers on deem rates. We go back to an instance five, 10 years ago. And we know when we look at the likes of Cornwall, we know that over the past five years, every single year, more and more people want to use brokers. They want to get the service. They want to use that level of, in, of independence. So pull the lever on, you know, on, on fee disclosure, but just make sure we're pulling the lever for the right reasons that have been economically thought out versus just looking like it's a good thing that we should do it. That's my call out. Thank you for that. Uh, really insightful, uh, Chris. Uh, you spoke about unintended consequences and low value customers. And uh, I can understand from your reply that you say that uh, brokers uh, are still uh, an integral part of the current energy system. Uh, as an interim chair of the Energy Consultants Association, what do you believe are the key areas that need attention to ensure a more, uh, a more transparent and fair energy market right now? Obviously, we've got the recall code of practice, which you know we've indicated as the ECA that we're broadly supportive of. Um, I think that the increased levels of fraud are a concern understandably you know frustratingly but understandably energy suppliers are very nervous about sharing information around fraud and we get it but other marketplaces other industries like motor insurance dealt with this 10-15 years ago by understanding that you had to create safe environments where information could be freely exchanged between end suppliers and, and third-party organizations that supported the sector. And we're a million miles away from that. So I think there's a lot of work that needs to be done in terms of setting up closed controlled environments where we can exchange information to suppliers and suppliers can exchange information for us. Reducing fraud rates is ultimately going to be a benefit to everybody and a benefit to the end customer and reducing cost. So that's a that's a big area. Things like access to data, you know, anybody that has tried to get access to Ecos 2, it's pretty much impossible. That's what our members tell us. Um, but we know, and again, the CMA said that, you know, we should, as brokers, we should be getting access to central data to help us become more efficient. You know, the recall code of practice wants us to give further assurances on consumption levels of customers. But for most of us, the only way that we can get, you know, quick and accurate levels of consumption is by using third-party systems like Electrolink, which is very, very expensive. And it feels as though our members tell us it's disproportionately expensive for the cost that the service should be. So finding ways that we can, our members can access central databases and systems like Ecos and like Electrolink at lower levels of cost will improve the quality of sales submissions, will reduce leakage levels, and will reduce the costs that ultimately get passed back onto the customer. If someone's paying £100,000 a year for Electrolink, the broker's going to have to pass that cost back on to the, to the end customer. And then there's objections. There's the back-end leakage. Again, when you look at our industry compared to others, the automation that we see between brokers and suppliers, especially for lower-value customers, is just not there. Um, so we've got to work collectively and more effectively to try and create 
improve levels of automation and access. Because if we can do that, we can lower our costs and we can create environments where we can be keener to try and attract those lower value customers that, you know, at the not the bottom of the food chain, but in terms of the of the value to brokers, you know, they're argue, arguably the most critical customers that need our support and assistance. But for many brokers, they just they're not interested in approaching a 25,000 kilowatt business because they look at it and think, I can't, I can't cover my costs on it. And that's a problem that I think we can go some way to fix. But it's automation, reducing cost, improving the connection between brokers and suppliers that I think will give us a helping hand to do that. Objections, handling, dealing with COTS, which I know FGM's called out with their most recent report, winbacks, getting clarity on winbacks in terms of whether whether or not they're a good or bad thing. They're the things that I think we can do to try and create a better impact for the end customer and lower costs. Chris, thank you very, very much for this. I really appreciate it, your time and our talk. Thank you again for joining Energy Live News. Thank you. It was a pleasure. Anytime. Thanks very much. Thank you for listening to this Energy Live News podcast. Please follow us on social media and subscribe to the website at www.energylivenews.com.